Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. July 31st, 2022, episode 214, Leap of Faith. Hello everyone, welcome into the Beekeeper's Corner, our little corner of the world where we talk beekeeping. I'm glad to have you, it's been a little bit since I've been around, but uh, that means typically that I have a bunch of stuff to talk about, and yeah, I'm in a roll today, got a bunch of things going on, and I'll tell you what's going to happen, but there's a key thing going on in this episode, and it has to do with the title, Leap of Faith. We're going to make a change in our operation, and I'm going to tell you the backstory of that, something that's been in the planning for years, quite frankly, literally years, and today is that announcement. So that should be an interesting topic to traverse. If I get into things to cover, it's a smattering of stuff, smattering uh, round table number one, bees, wax, wreck came upon this while out on vacation. Round table number two, the summer synopsis of what's been going on, where I've been, what I've been doing. A little talk about mentor visits and the value of them. And I'm going to go on a rant. My impressions of about how much I loathe plastic foundation. Loathe. Capital L. Loathe. Roundtable number three, the great glut of almonds. Will it have an impact on the commercial beekeeping? I'm going to tell you what happened and why I think that may be possible. Roundtable number four, if you're not following this, this is an important story for the world at large. Australia is fighting the good fight. Varroa mites have landed on their uh, area, their continent, and Somewhere in New South Wales, they are burning colonies down, trying to prevent the spread. And I'm not sure whether they will or will not uh, win this battle. It almost reminds me of the battle against the giant Asian hornet going on out there uh, in Washington State and Canada. Will researchers be able to get ahead of it? And thwart something that nature is fighting them every step of the way. It's an interesting thought. Roundtable number five, it's honey harvesting season. And recently in conversations, a bunch of us have been talking about different techniques to help with the filter clog problem. And I'll give a good rundown of that. Maybe too long, but it's a thorough following of that. Yeah, it's a good one though. Topic number one, the transition to treatment-free beekeeping. That's all I'm going to say about that. Topic number two, while in Florida, you'll hear a recount of our serendipitous visit to the Gainesville Bee Lab. Really enjoyed that. Of course, we'll have the local hive report and some closing comments as we head to EAS. No better time to start the show than right now. Roundtable number one, call this one, Tillamook County. I bookmarked this first ditty after having some ice cream in Florida. It was a bit of a collision of topics, and of course I will explain. My son Danny bought his home out on the West Coast after deciding he was going to park himself in the Seattle area. 
while we were out there, he introduced us to their local brand of ice cream, Tillamook. Now this might be fighting words, but Tillamook is pretty good and every bit as good as, say, a premium brand that most people know, like Breyers. It's not something you see around New Jersey, though. It's a West Coast thing, and I have to say that on the few occasions that we've been out there, we have imbibed on the stuff. Now, imagine my surprise earlier this summer when Danny was on vacation with us in Florida, and he returned from the local Publix grocery store after an ice cream run with a half gallon of Tillamook's Finest. Fast forward to the moment where I was sitting at the table of my mother-in-law's dining room once again enjoying a little Tillamook ice cream, swiping on my phone through Facebook to pass the time. There, in a Facebook post, was the word Tillamook. And it was a topic about beekeeping. It kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies if you know what I mean. It turns out that Tillamook is known for something more than ice cream. There's a legend in those parts about a ship that sailed in a previous day and it carried treasures of immeasurable value. One can turn back the clock to the late 1600s and learn that a ship thought to be of maybe Spanish origin met its demise against the shores of Tillamook County just west of Portland, Oregon, and it spewed its contents into the sea. The local lore around there it was carrying great quantities of beeswax. Written records back to the 1800s tell of locals who traded the errant beeswax which floated ashore. And while this whole story may be some old yarn told over centuries, any vestiges of the shipwreck itself have never been really documented. Until now, there was a recent discovery of both parts of the beams, and some additional beeswax. Now let me turn down the nostalgia element a bit and get more serious. So we'll provide a link in the show notes that has a pretty comprehensive accounting of some of the things I've shared with you. And if you follow the lore, they have photographs of several pieces of the artifacts, including other chunks of beeswax beyond the one they just found. The speculation is the boat was carrying tons a beeswax in large blocks, as well as candles. The blocks were, given the photos, adorned with stamps and or markings, and they are dated back to the period when traced. And there was also porcelain found in the vicinity that they can date back to the late 1680s to 1700. That's how they know how old it is. Now, if you think about that, this is in the time when we don't have bees in America. They were bringing beeswax from Asia across and down through and trading it. And I think that's rather interesting to just kind of put your head in the space of the timeline. Well, many think that the ship was Spanish in origin. There was a period of time where they thought maybe it could have been Chinese or Japanese. And well... They still haven't exactly pinned that down yet. The center of the story in Facebook caught my eyes that they think they have found the remnants, or they have concluded that they found the remnants of a ship that they knew about through the stories after 15 years searching, and that ship is the Santa Cristo. They infer that they found the remnants of the ship that matched what they were looking for, 
beams and wood and such that they can date back to that period, but they still have yet to find, I think, the ship outright. What's kind of cool in all this, and the last aha moment, is the story of the beeswax wreck, that's what it's been called since the 1800s, tells tales of beeswax that's been traded and that people survived the crash and that this has just been something that's carried through the centuries to the point where all the people in that area knew about it and young kids were inspired to go try and find Spanish galleons and such because, you know, the beeswax and the porcelain that was found confirms right there off the shores of Oregon there was a crash ship and there is debris to prove it so much so that the stories informed a steven spielberg film you may have heard called the goonies the beeswax wreck is the catalyst for the movie the goonies so all this is well and good and an interesting yarn but to me the sheer fact that they have blocks of beeswax artifacts from the 1600s some that bear the mark of Santo Cristo de Burgos is just the coolest thing going. I'll have a link to a website about the timeline of the Beeswax wreck site and also a link to coverage not too long ago from National Geographic on the whole story and tale and the discovery of the beams from the ship and such all outlined in, the, in a timeline. It's a really cool read, beeswax notwithstanding. Roundtable number two, woefully behind. The month of July just zipped right past. Uh, noticed that there are a bunch of emails in the inbox. Looking for some suggestions, making some comments, whatever. If you wrote in, thanks. Oh, I'm sorry, I haven't replied back to you. The weekends as you might imagine, have been just occupied, started with services for my father, then went to mentoring, vacation, weekend spent at the races at Pocono, and now July is gone. I'm a weekend beekeeper. I work during the week, and, you know, it's kind of hard getting to a bunch of stuff, and maybe after EAS I can come back and just focus on things. But I wanted to spend a moment talking about the mentoring program, the mentor visits that we had it reinforces to me that you can't do mentoring without physical hands-on. You just can't. We go out and meet with folks who are well-intentioned. And one thing to be said about the mentoring program that we're operating in pilot right now that goes full-fledged next year, the challenge is that people just show up midstream. And when you get them that way, they're not following the recipe. They're not following the playbook. They're doing their own thing, which is fine and just the way the world, but it makes for significant challenges and it points out, I want to see this as glass half full, that what we're saying to do makes sense because 90% of the time to fix the situation, we come in, we look at what they have going on and we tell them to follow the instructions we gave in the first place. Most of them do that and right their wrongs. Uh, I will say emphatically right now, 95%, and that's being generous, 
of the problems that I see with new beekeepers is using plastic comb. Sorry. Sorry. I am, I am just going to be unapologetic for bashing plastic foundation. New beekeepers, they don't know what they're doing. And unless the colony gets off to an amazing start, builds like crazy in a perfect forage season, they're in trouble. Every beekeeper we go to see, most of the challenges, my estimation, is because they have plastic comb. And had they used wax foundation, they probably would not have suffered the fates that they have. The comb isn't built out. The comb is wonky. Bees didn't uh, move into the next box because they won't go up. Uh, there's a myriad of problems. I'm overstating the problem to emphasize the fact of how much I dislike plastic foundation. I just can't stand it. And the challenge is when you get to July and you go visit people to make sure that they're right, it's hard. They should be in two boxes. Some of them are in a single box because they didn't do things right. And now they got to build the second box out during the dearth with no nectar flow. Bees don't want to build foundation in that round. Some of these folks are having to go buy plastic foundation or plastic, sorry, go buy wax foundation and put it in because they just simply can't get it to build. Now, don't get me wrong. For every two, three hives that don't work, there is one that does work. And the only way that I can quantify that is not all plastic foundation is the same. So I'll just say this as a broad statement. I have a mental impression that will not be changed until I see things otherwise. New beekeepers, plastic foundation, bad recipe, bad equation, doesn't work. Um, yes, you can force your way through it. And yes, beekeepers eventually get there. But boy, is it the hard road to go. Now, universally, and I'm not saying there aren't off cases, when you go see people who've used wax foundation to start a colony, I have someone in our hometown. She's already two, two honey supers from a package. <laughs> so, and she had wax foundation. That, that is the complete opposite of the other situation. The, the colony is just a beast and has done great. She's got to do mite monitoring and all this other stuff because it's basically a full-size production colony. I'll take that all day long. Okay, put the soapbox away. But uh, mentoring visits, the, the last word on this, they're, they're really important because when we go out in the early July time frame and visit these people, if they have any course corrections that are needed, they would have no clue because they just don't have the acumen, the experience to know how to fix it. And I feel like people that would have struggled and quit we probably save them and they'll get righted and we'll keep tabs on them. And mentoring visits are uh, an incredible service. And the way that we do it, it's not a burden to us because we schedule the time. We know in May that in July, we're going to go make mentoring visits. And we have a team that go out and visit various people in their area. It's a little more tenuous this year because they don't have as many mentors. Unfortunately, I lost two of them to COVID, uh, two of my main persons. But the other thing is with COVID, we have less communication with our beekeepers and I just didn't have as many volunteer mentors this year, but we got through it. Everybody got a mentor visit that needed one. And on the whole, 
the experience was positive for all the beekeepers. So um, we will do it again next year. Next year, uh, with the full-flown program, we want people to sign up and we want them to take the oath that they're going to follow the program instructions, which we encourage beekeepers to use wax foundation in the beginning, not plastic. And I'm almost contemplating the point that if they tell us they bought a kit with plastic, I'm going to tell them to go buy, put it away, put it on the side. I don't care what you do with it, but go buy wax foundation and build those frames. I'm almost that emphatic about it. After three years of visiting beekeepers and having the notes of how they're failing with plastic foundation in the beginning. Oh, I said I was going to put that away and here I go again. All right, that's enough for that one. Let's go to the next round table. Round table number three, call this one Monkey Wrench. It's about the glut of almonds in California. The complexity of providing the resources needed to grow almonds in California is beyond staggering. California produces 80% of the world's almond supply, and it should be no surprise to learn that 70% of those almonds are exported for sale. As we all know, one of the key dependencies for almonds is honeybee pollination. So it's sad to learn that there's a new problem facing the almond industry. This time, it's not about drought. It's not about pesticides. It's not about lack of bees. It is about lack of consumers when it comes to being able to export the product. Ironically, it's just not a want for the product, but more about supply chain issues. There's such a high demand for shipping containers that as soon as they are unloaded on the docks, it is said they're put right back on the ships and sent back to Asia. In the grand scheme of things, it has turned out that exports are down about 13% this year, with around 1.3 billion pounds of almonds left undelivered. This information was recently reported by the San Francisco Chronicle. The only silver lining in this is that almonds aren't prone to spoilage, and apparently they could last for up to two years before going bad in storage. Hopefully, in two years, the supply chain issue can be resolved and they could be sent on their merry way. But this begs the question for me about, do almond orchards need to produce as much crop next year? Can they even stop producing the crop given trees are there, trees need to produce? And does it have some sort of impact on, well, if they want to lessen the throughput, would it have a trickle-down effect on, say, beekeeping industry with a lower demand for pollination services? These are all good questions. That's pretty much all I want to say about this, but it's an interesting dynamic to consider, and I wonder if we'll hear more about this in the beekeeping industry come next spring. There's a link in the show notes to California is stuck with a billion pounds of almonds if you want to read a little further. Round table number four, I call this one, Oh No, Australia. And maybe it's a bit about burying the lead as for round table number four. If you follow any beekeeping news, you might be aware now that Australia has finally realized its worst case scenario when it comes to beekeeping. For years and years, they have somehow been able to control the infiltration of varroa mites, but this is no more. 
As we speak, they are putting up the good fight, and unfortunately, the tactic that they have to employ is to exterminate tens of millions of bees. Australia is the last major honey production nation to encounter the mites, and this time they are taking extreme measures to do whatever they can do to thwart the infestation, but the news coming out of Australia is that the battle is super complicated. Varroa mites were first discovered in the port of Newcastle in the June time frame, and officials for the country have proactively been managing for the detection of Varroa mites on the premise that it had to happen sooner or later. When the discovery was made, they set up eradication zones and from the report tallied on June, nope, July 15th, they have destroyed more than 1,800 hives and have been monitoring thousands more trying to keep the mites at bay. Australia has always taken a strict biosecurity measure when it comes to Varroa mites, taking advantage of its relative isolation to keep the mites out, but officials there have always known that the plausibility existed no matter what measures they were taking, and it is possible, and they have planned for the fact that Varroa mites might break through. At current time, they're still hopeful that they can contain the spread and eradicate the mites before they're able to get a foothold, but the war will rage on for the next couple months to be sure. It's likely that we won't know whether they have won the battle until the end of the year. I guess we'll continue to watch the story as it unfolds to look to see if Australia is going to have the unfortunate experience of joining the rest of the world in having to live with and combat Varroa mites. I'm sure you already know this by now. I have a link in the show notes to the source article I referenced called inside the war room where the fight against Varroa mite is raging. Moving right along, roundtable number five, harboring some ideas for honey filtering. Yeah, it's that time of year, at least here in New Jersey, where we fire up the extractor and get to honey harvesting. For the most part, harvesting honey is a somewhat straightforward thing to do, but there are a handful of things that can trip you up along the way. One of the more frustrating things on that timeline is filtering the honey as it's exiting the extractor and going into the bucket underneath, if you do your honey extraction that way. In our setup, we have a double screen mesh sitting over a honey bucket that has a gate, and after it's full, we use the gate to fill our bottles. The double screen mesh is problematic and if you don't pay attention to it, it tends to get clogged with wax debris in short order. What I'm going to talk about in this round table are a few tips and a new, at least to me, suggestion for solving this chink in the armor. The first thought is a good defense is the best offense. The work that you do preventing the shards of wax cappings from getting into the extractor pays dividends in the end. This starts, ironically enough, with how you set up your honey boxes when you put them on the hive. If you put 10 frames of honey to a super, the bees do not draw the cells out as deep and the face of the comb is not out beyond the face of the top bar frame. The side effect of this is it often leads to complication for slicing off the capping wax. 
Now the opposite is true if you use nine frames and the bees can build deeper cells and the wax capping stands out from the face of the frame. That coupled with a slicing motion from something like a bread knife does less damage to the wax capping when uncapping and the net result is fewer shards of wax to clog up your filter. Now some like uncapping forks for the job. And I know I've seen the appeal of that, but if you look at what the frame face looks like as you're picking it up and loading it in the extractor, there tends to be a lot of bits and pieces of wax, the shards, sitting on the surface of the frames, just waiting to be spun out and clog your filter. So net net nine frames in the box and consider what tools you are using and how cleanly they are taking off the capping layer. Now the truth is no matter how much you focus on these things, there's going to be wax pieces in the extracted honey. To combat that, a few tips have surfaced recently and I wanted to share and tell you that we're going to give them a try this year. Tip number one, place a piece of cheesecloth over your double filter. Yeah, I know what you're thinking, but hear me out. The big problem with this cheesecloth and honey thing is that cheesecloth sheds. As beekeepers, we want our honey to be free from debris, and this includes the strings that may come from the cheesecloth. Think about this now. If you use it over the filters, the filters catch the strings and they never get through to the honey. The key here is when the honey filters get clogged, you just close your extractor, take the cheesecloth off and replace it and go back to work. One of the more loathsome jobs in extracting is trying to get those wax shards off the surface of your fine mesh filters. Most of the time you end up pushing it through or yeah. In this way, you could pull off the cheesecloth, set it aside, deal with it later. And in a roundabout way, it limits the bottleneck of cleaning the mesh and gets you back to extracting throughput. Now to tip number two, it employs a chinois style filter. A what? I know. It's spelled C-H-I-N-O-I-S. It's called chinois. I like that word, chinois. This is more about the shape or style of the filter than the double screen filter that you're probably accustomed to. You'll find a chinois filter for use in the kitchen. But there's different designs to them. Some of them look like a colander with holes. Some of them are made with screen mesh. To describe it, a proper chinois filter is an inverse conical filter. It has a wide opening at the top and it tapers down to a deep triangular shape. And it's this shape that we're after. To take this one step further, Put aside the chinois filter for a moment and consider an alternative. Imagine, if you will, a large food safe bag that's made from a fine mesh. The technique here is to let the bag sag into the bucket 
slide it over underneath the extractor and allow the honey to fall unencumbered into the vessel. Now, whether it's being collected in a chinois style strainer or this mythical bag, when it is mostly full, you close your extractor and you draw the filter up and out and it collects the wax while allowing the surface area, large amount of surface area, to let the honey go through, if you will. Less clogging. Now, you have to go slow or you risk pulling all the honey up and out of the bucket. But if you do this properly, it should be a little more efficient than the other method, which is the double filter that gets clogged. The benefit here is no clogging until the end, so no impedance. But then in the end, after you draw the bag or chinois out, if you're using them, it filters it all at once. So tactically, you're allowing the shards to float in the bucket and then pulling them out at the end. Now mess this up and the shards make their way into your bucket and you'll have a challenge on your hands to correct the situation. So if you're going to take this tactic, find the right materials to do it and take your time, do it right, think it through. Now the one last technique, one that we're going to try this year, this is number three. As I think about it, this could be a combo platter. It kind of, in a roundabout way, could employ all the approaches in one go. The premise of this third tactic is let it flow. Let it flow, let it flow, let it dee 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 da da da. This one requires two buckets and some extra equipment. There's a bit of a change in the approach and there is one concession. It requires more time. But see, you trade time for less hassle and then it's up to you as to whether this one's worth it. The setup for this particular approach goes this way. You take a bucket with a gate and you put the mesh bag into it. You allow the extracted honey bits and all to flow into the bucket lined with the bag draped inside. The bucket sits aside, capped, for 28 hours. 48 is better. Maybe you'll even leave it longer. That's your choice. And the wait time is crucial to this approach as what happens during that layover is it results in the wax and the debris floating to the top of the honey collected in the bucket. At the stage when you want to get the honey out of that bucket, sans any wax debris, you can scoop the top off or you can open the gate and let it flow out into another one capped with mesh filters lined with cheesecloth if that's the way you want to roll. See the deal here is the first bucket when you open the gate the honey has allowed all the debris and it should be relatively clean honey flowing out going through your cheesecloth through your strainers into the second buck and from a time standpoint cleaner honey is going to flow right through. Now the scorecard is the clogging wax is floating and as the honey drains, the wax debris is collected in that internal bag filter 
like the chinois effect, if you will. And any wax or debris that gets through, you can swap out the cheesecloth on the double filter and use the same approach as earlier. You know, if this all goes well, it should flow through easy peasy and you'll have pristine honey in the second bucket to move off to individual jars. And you didn't have to deal with the whole clog factor because all of the wax floated to the top. Yeah, downsides to this time, more equipment, you're cleaning more stuff, clogged filters. Is it worth it? It's hard to say, but you know what? We're going to let you know because there's one other side effect if you think about it this way. If you do part of the job one day, part of the job the next day, I kind of think that's okay. Uh, depending on how much honey you're extracting, it could be a real chore to just work through it all, slog through it all in one setting. If you did the cut, spin, get into the bucket part one day and the filter and bottle cleanup the second day, maybe that's a better way to go. And our friends down the street who have employed this method and kind of gave us this little tip, they like the fact that they could take the buckets and bring them inside and work in their kitchen. And it doesn't make a god awful mess because it's in the bucket and you know, you can usually open honey gates and not get honey all over the place. For topic number one, this is called taking the leap. And if you think about what I'm about to tell you, it's a pretty big leap. I will share that I have been belaboring a decision all year long and have set things motion as far back as last December for this move, but the planning goes back for years. Now, I personally have made a lot of choices in beekeeping and have experimented with a number of things because I want to know, not talk about, but know what the outcomes are by practice. And what I'm about to say reaches back to a pivotal conversation between Bob Kloss and I at a time when we were rearing queens and just having banter conversations about the impacts of varroa mites on our colonies. The discussion stemmed around damage from infested bees with varroa mites to other hives in the vicinity, in the neighborhood, in the region. More so about the concept of mite bombs and are they truly spreading varroa mites far and wide? Now I'll come back to this idea in a little bit, but for now, let me say what I'm going to say about what's going on. For a number of reasons I'm going to discuss in this feature, I am going to turn to treatment free for a period of time and we'll see how that goes. I want to, for the purposes of learning firsthand, understand what it is to be a full on treatment free beekeeper. Now to be clear, I'm not walking away from monitor and treat. In fact, in my instruction to mentee beekeepers and other encounters, I'm going to continue to stay the tried and true path of that philosophy. However, in my own apiary, I am not going to treat my bees going forward for the purpose of learning how the bees adapt to zero treatment. I feel like 
I cannot assess what it is all about if I never walk the walk. And I think, and perhaps this is a rationalization, that the circumstances in which I'm undertaking this endeavor make sense at this time. And you have to hear what I'm going to unpack that's led up to this experimental direction. Now, I've held my cards close to the vest, but if you followed the show long enough, you may have picked up that there's been some planned series events of events in play that bring us to this time. I'm going to talk about Bob Kloss in this feature because this is pretty much a scheme made possible by his hard work and dedication to the notion that what we both believe in locally raised survivor stock accounts for something. And quite frankly, he has put words to practice and I feel like I am going to follow him and back him up. And in some respects, we've agreed to join forces in this pursuit. Going back to that fateful conversation, Bob and I spoke about getting off the treadmill. And it doesn't make any sense here in New Jersey for the many reasons that I've talked about so many times on this show. You know, hundreds, if not thousands of packages over the years that have come into our regions that delete the stock and prevent locally adapted bees that everyone treats around here. And well, you know, you could keep going down the reasons. So why treatment free now? It's kind of a fool's folly, but what if, what if you could do something to see whether you can get it to work and make a small change in this particular region to rear locally adapted stock that is able to withstand varroa mites and then carry that forward generation after generation. I want to believe Although that can fool's folly that Bob and I may have an impact on this region if we can prove it out in our own yards. And that's kind of the experiment. We would carry it in this region where we are under constant pressure from colonies that are managed in a manner that's 180 degrees from that philosophy. And you can't figure it out unless you actually try it. Now, I've always said going treatment freeze, uh, fool's errand here in New Jersey because of the density of hives and how we keep hives, large clusters of colonies, many to a yard in close proximity to each other. It's simply the wrong recipe. And we have no influence over that. But if I think about it, setting bees up as treatment free in the middle of that is going to do one thing that I feel is problematic with attempting the approach, it's going to put too much pressure on the colonies to overcome, which is why we don't recommend to people around here, go treatment free. And there's more than enough evidence of people who said, you know what, I don't care, I'm going to go treatment free. And they do. And then year after year in following up with them, they have terrible results. By my way of thinking, and this is just an impression that I have, a single colony can deal with a lot of things on its own merit. But when a colony is dealing with its things and it has to deal with other things from the neighborhood, then perhaps that's a recipe that's just too hard to overcome. 
And this comes back to interactions between colonies in close proximity to each other if you bleed of all that's happening. So why now then? Nothing's changed, why now? I have to come back to that aha moment in the conversation we were having and it's such a stupid thing that it's almost laughable. Bob said, kind of tongue in cheek, what's the worst thing that happens? And he laid it out this way, and I have to say, it was such an astute observation that it led to this very decision. It has to do with imploding varroamite hives. Ask yourself, when do they succumb to the infestation? When? Almost universally, the real answer to this, year on year, is in the wintertime. Wintertime. In a time when they're dormant and they go quietly into that good night. Now don't get me wrong. If you have something raging going on. Then you have to acknowledge this. Sometimes bees implode before the fall. Before the winter gets here and they're not dormant. They demonstrate a major infestation in late summer. And if they're left alone they make it so bad as to collapse hard enough to abscond and take their troubles far and wide. So, yeah, this is not a hands-off approach. It needs to be mitigated. What I've been talking about so far is the logic inputs, kind of the assessment of what factors are in play, and then there's one more kind of key to the equation. We have not talked about yet, are there truly colonies that will live year on year without treatment and keep chugging along? Do they exist, these mythical unicorns? The proper answer is, of course there is. There's enough evidence out in the world to suggest that bees that are left on their own will adapt and overcome over time if set up in the right circumstances. And coming back to Bob Claus, he's kind of demonstrated that to me. Now, let's talk about something here. Where Bob keeps his bees is a little more isolated from others in his region. Now, I'm not saying he's not near other beekeepers. He is. But his closest beekeepers are kind of onesie-twosie beekeepers. And the truth is, some of his out yards where he keeps his bees, not just his home yard, are his closest competitors. Now for several years, he has been sourcing specialized queens, rearing local stock, getting survivor bees from bee trees, and he's been letting weak hives die. Some years he takes it on the chin, and other years he gets through quite well. If he has a particularly bad year, it typically happens in one yard, but not all three. And he can go and rebuild from the stock that survived across the spread. And I might as well say, in some small part, I've been participating in that plan too over the last couple of years. He's brought in Saskatchewan bees, high quality Carniolian stock. I've given him some Russian bees. He has survivor lineage from couple queens that have lasted two, three, four, five years, and so on. 
That five-year queen, we bred from that, and her stock are some of the best colonies that I have in my yard. The short of it is he's let the weak bees die while carrying forward the survivors, and for the past years, I've been breeding from those bees, and so is he, to try and fill our yards with the best stock that we can muster. So now seems the right time to see if there's a payoff. For me personally, there's a condition at play which affords the possibility for the first time in my beekeeping tenure. I have taken to my six frame nuke boxes in full force. I have six or seven of them deployed right now. They're easy to work with and easy to reconstitute if I have losses. They build fast, they're big enough to overwinter without insulation, and this has set the stage for me to try this experiment. I really feel these hive form factors play a factor in this, and it's a bit of a game changer for me to experiment. At least 15 colonies in my yard at this time, of the 20 plus in play right now, are from our reared stock after doing queen rearing for the last three years. In fact, the hive on pad 11 is a captured swarm and it might be the only outside one in my apiary this year. The rest of them are all bred. Now, some of these swarms that moved into my swarm boxes could be from outside colonies, who knows? But my guess is they're probably my bees. You know, if I look at this, step out of this conversation and just say, what do we, Sharon and I, want in our yard? We want at least 10 colonies. That seems to be the right number. So if I have double that and I hedge my bets and I have a loss of 50%, I'm still back to 10 colonies, which is fine by me. Now, no treatments. That's the plan. How do I feel about it? Truth be told, it makes me sick to my stomach. <laughs> this may turn out to be the single most stupid experiment in my beekeeping tenure. And if I use my experience, all signs say, I'm skeptical. I, I don't think it's going to work. Yet this is an experiment that's three years in the planning and coming back to someone who teaches beekeeping and wants to have real world experience. I'm never going to know if I don't try it. And there's never been an opportunity to give it a go. So impact assessment aside, all that stuff I just talked about, I've weighed in on it and we're taking the plunge. If I think where this goes, one of four things have the potential to happen. One is just complete and utter failure. As the season goes on, each and every colony is overrun by varroa mites and other diseases and such, implodes, and come spring, nothing's left. That is the nuclear worst case scenario, and it's highly unlikely, but I have to admit it's plausible. Number two, something in the middle. A large subset of colonies don't make it through, but it leaves me with enough to scrape by and rebuild and carry on. I think I can live with that, 
but I don't know how long I would sustain that if that was going to be the way the world. Number three, something ideal. A larger subset of the colonies make it through. And yeah, there's going to be some losses, and they have to be rebuilt. And then finally, the unicorn. Everything makes it through, and well, we're pretty much, no, this is unlikely, but we can dream, can't we? Now, there's one thing that plays into which thing happens somewhat, and that's me. I'm not going to stop being a beekeeper. It's not like I'm not going to inspect our bees as the year goes on. And if I see colonies that are heading for a bad place, that some are imploding, I'm just not going to allow them to crash and burn. This is going to make some people's toes curl, but if a colony is in a super bad way, showing signs of a mite implosion, European fowl brood from stress, I'm going to mitigate it. You know, to be clear, that colony, not all the other ones, just that one. That's a bit like the Megan approach, where she explained towards treatment-free was to talk. Fix the ones that are broken, let the other ones ride. I need to be a good neighbor. I am not going to let imploding hives just fester in the yard and go out and impact my neighbors. Now, on the other side, if they implode and die over winter and I have to clean them up before spring comes, no harm, no foul. I'm really not going to have a problem with that. So yes, if something's going awry, I'm going to intervene. If, however, a hive is puttering along, I'm going to let it ride. I need to know if the stock we are rearing can overcome this stuff. And in some respects, it's a way to learn with how much they can deal with. The real turning point in this strategy is the epiphany that if they die in winter, the bees die, the mites die, and if you clean it up before spring, the true harm is losing the colony, which, quite frankly, is always painful. But when you do experimentation, you have to put some things at risk for the sake of learning. The truth is, and now is the time to say it, the full-fledged treating way is great, proven, but even with full-fledged attention, bees perish. I know beekeepers who treat three times a year, if not more. I count myself in that space on most occasions, and they're still losing their bees, some of them up to 40 to 50%. Me personally, last year, counting the tally, I lost six of 13 colonies. Some of it was my doing, other was Varroa. If, with no treatments, I fall into the lost sum, number three, but made it, many made it through, category, after this winter, then I am really not any worse off. In fact, I'm clear of the benefit that's on the horizon. No chemicals in my hives, no labor of treating, no cost and all the baggage of that. And I have in my hip pocket that if you give me six hives in spring, should this thing turn south, I can make 20 colonies from them in short order. So in a nutshell, even though I am taking on a significant number or amount of risk, I'm really not worried about it. And the other thing is, Bob and I have a pact to prop each other up and have been collaborating in that way for years. Our collaboration affords opportunity that we are both committed to see if we can make this work. 
So let me come back to center. 2022 provides the right setup. My entire yard has been curated over three years in cooperation with the plan done with Bob to get bees of higher quality. They were derived from high quality stock, whatever you think that means, and Bob has spent years propagating what he maintains from survivors without treatments. Mmm, hold on a minute. Wait, what? Yeah, I feel like I just outed Bob when it comes to be a treatment-free beekeeper. And I think this requires a little exploration. Bob made a decision to do this thing I'm talking about and take the leap a long time ago. The truth is, I'm just getting with the program. He's always maintained a large quantity of hives. Some, say the one he manages for Northwest New Jersey beekeepers, he follows the try and true treatment, monitor, and treat path. While in his home yard, he has not been treating. He's been employing this hybrid approach, at least in his home yard, and over the years he's achieved an equilibrium. That word, equilibrium, it needs to be qualified. Year on year, especially in the early years, he'd have a few good years where the bees carried on happily, and then a year would occur and the whole yard would be wiped out, and he'd paramount to have to start over again. He's been through several cycles of that over the last decade, and if you look back, but the thing is, he never stopped breeding from survivor stock. He never stopped seeking bees from trees, from nature. He never stopped trying to bring in industry-deemed quality queens. And over time, the bad years, where he took it on the chin, were less hurtful. Now, he still seems to have some bad years every once in a while. But the pattern has yielded results that are on par or better than if he was actually treating and some of his treatment yards. He especially did better after listening to my non-stop nagging that he get rid of his old comb. I just simply worm out about that until he yielded. And so far, that has demonstrated quite a bit of improvement in his colonies. I can physically see it when I'm over his place working his bees. This might be the moment where some of you say, uh, who knew? Yeah, <laughs> but if you listen closely to the show and you considered this possible path, you may have picked up what was going on. And I would imagine for many of you, especially those who have been here for a long time, this is a holy cow moment. You know, I'm right there with you. I'm not under any illusions of grandeur. And while I am a glass half full person all day long, in this case, I'm telling myself, it's likely not going to work and allowing myself to know that if things go horribly wrong, I can live with myself. I think you can tell by the amount of information I've shared already, a lot of consideration has gone into this. There are two other factors though I want to touch upon before letting this float out there in the ether and starting down this path. Surprisingly, one of the biggest hurdles I 
needed to overcome is my loathing of cleaning up dead hives. In my mind, this was a big one, admittedly, a bigger consideration for me personally. In fact, as I sit here today, it's still one of the things that doesn't rest easy with me, the notion of it and making this decision. Not only do I not want dead bees on my conscience, because in my mind, what kind of beekeeper does that make me? But I think one of the most deplorable tasks in beekeeping is cleaning up a dead colony. It's not that big of a deal, but for me, it's like someone who's afraid of snakes and spiders. It just jeeves me out. Now, we all know that inevitably, it's unavoidable. If you keep bees for any period of time, it comes with the territory. In an example of my glass half full mentality, I've come full circle now, and I try to see it as an opportunity. In the end, I have a full box of comb, something I need every year. It affords the opportunity to jettison any brood comb that's dodgy, not well built, and it improves my program on the overall. I swear that the whole comb rotation thing that I've been on has been a game changer and has really improved my apiary. It's not this placebo thing. I can see how much better the colonies are upon inspections year on year. Coming back to the last factor, this opportunity to do this would not be possible with the hard work from Bob. I speak in reverence of him on a number of occasions, and we are great friends, both in the world of beekeeping and just in general. We make time to go out with our wives to dinner and do things on the side away from beekeeping, and, you know, if you've ever seen us at a conference or bee meetings or things like that, we're like Mutt and Jeff. He's been laboring at this approach for years. I might even say more than a decade if I think back to it. And it's through his hard work and dedication that this notion is even possible. And no matter how this turns out, I have to applaud him for his perseverance to the idea. We've always talked about trying to become more sustainable beekeepers to get off the treatment treadmill. He's put his money where his mouth is. In the hope to share what we learn and possibly set the stage for others to follow in what really is his footsteps on this. Now, we're not the first in the world to do this, but I bet I'm one of the most... Uh, how do I say, put it out there, exposures on something like this, other than say the treatment free folks who just do this as a, as a side thing, you know, their deal. That's their, their way of life. But, um, we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be an interesting couple of years and season by season, we'll reassess and see how this goes. And, in a, in a roundabout way, I'm relieved to give this a try. I have to say, I've really enjoyed not treating this year, monitoring, doing whatever. You know, the last thing, last thing that I'll say, and I'm sure I'll have plenty of this to say as the year goes on. One of the questions someone's going to ask me is, well, how do you know if you're being successful? Are you going to monitor for mites? 
I honestly can look in a colony and tell you whether the mites are impacting it or not. I don't have to monitor. That's a stupid statement. I could hear a lot of people just like daggers. Do I intend to monitor? Yeah. Come springtime, I am going to go monitor my habit. I just want to know what the mite loads are. No matter what treatment-free means to anybody, it's just a curiosity to say, are they dealing with mites? Because there are times when you manage colonies and even with or without treatments, you find the mite loads are low. There's seasons where it just goes that way. That would be a false sense of security where I happen to fall into this year where mite loads happen to be low in 2022 because let's say there's a drought this summer, which our, our creek is dry, so that's true. And then next year, my false sense of stability, I'm declaring success. And the fact is it had nothing to do with what we were doing. So you really can't tell how the program's going without monitoring. So somewhere along the line, yeah, I'm planning to sample, but not yet. I'm just going to let things go and it'll be an interesting July, August, September to see what the health of the colony looks like over the next couple of months sans any treatments. And if it hasn't been evident, I didn't treat in December like I normally do, December, January. I didn't treat in February, March. You've not heard me say, oh, by the way, I've been treating this year, monitoring and whatever. This has kind of been underway. And I figured I had till July to stay treatment free before I had to either decide to treat or not treat. And well, now you know. For topic number two in this episode, I want to talk about hospitality. We recently took a family trip to Florida and enjoyed uh, family vacation. And while we were there, my son and his girlfriend wanted to go up to Gainesville to visit the college there because his girlfriend is looking for the opportunity to switch colleges and go there to the veterinary school. The University of Florida campus is amazing, but it also happens to be home to the Gainesville B-Lab. So while they went off to go look at the veterinary college, we wandered around the campus trying to find the B-Lab. We pulled into this back parking lot that the GPS brought in, brought us to, and walked up with no expectations. And the funny thing is we appeared to come in through the back entrance. You know, unbeknownst to us, we'd never been there. I have driven to Florida on a number of occasions, and I knew every single time you drive through like Beltsville, Maryland, or University of Florida in Gainesville, that there's B labs there, and I've always wanted to go there. Well, we came in the back entrance and walked up to the building, and the door was locked. Like lost tourists, we were staring in the windows trying to figure out how to get around the building and get to the front entrance when someone took pity on us and came and opened the locked door. Like hitting the lottery, the kind soul that came to us was Brandon Stanford, one of the state apiarists of Florida, who happens to be based and his office is right there in the campus. We asked him if he could help us find the entrance and 
I guess he took pity upon us, upon asking what our business was, found out we were beekeepers and just simply struck up a conversation and then began to tell us about what was going on in the bee yard we were standing in. What follows are a handful of discussion points we had while walking around. And yeah, it was like winning the lotteries. He gave us the tour and spent well over 20 minutes with us just telling us about all that goes on in the facility. There were so many interesting tidbits, and I'm going to spend a few minutes going through some of the things we learned, things we talked about, shared, in no particular order. The first thing to say is we were standing in a yard of hives and it turns out that the yard is one of the few that they have for the purpose of research training and other pursuits twice a year they host beekeepers in their bee college and they start them out on day one with building equipment which apparently happened earlier in that day there were a handful of boxes being built by new beekeepers sitting underneath an awning they the new beekeepers had constructed the boxes and they were all sitting there in various states of being painted and finished. Brandon explained to us that they would come back the next day and finish them and that's how they start them on day one by building equipment and they take it from there. Now to describe the yard that we were sitting in, very well manicured, over a dozen hives, all on little hive stands dispersed behind the building and Brandon mentioned that Given the climate in Gainesville, they can do research just about all year long as it's warm there. Although I know from my mother-in-law's home in Homosassa that some nights gets down into the 30s, but surely bees can deal with that. We were standing next to a bunch of hives and he suggested, look right there, those hives are mite factories. They're super, super infested for the purpose of doing research. And I asked him, you have these mites, mite bombs, basically sitting there. Do you worry about drifting? And he told us about the study they did and how surprised they were at how pervasive drifting was. I've read this research. Um, what they did was take a bunch of bees and mark them and then go around to different colonies. And I, I'm sure they're not the first and only to do this. But they did demonstrate that not only drones, but workers and others were found far and wide through all the hives, both in that yard and in other yards that they maintained around the campus. He pointed out to us that they use observation hives a lot of times. And as such, the balance of what the bees do for work, polyethism, isn't as standard as, say, a full-size hive. And what that means is maybe a nurse bee would be pressed into service to forage and younger bees would graduate faster and such. And as such, they were surprised to see bees that they wouldn't think would leave the hive actually drifted and were out in other hives. Again, not just drones. I thought that was interesting and maybe at some point I put a pin in that. I'm going to go back and find that research and see what it had to say about it. It's kind of neat when you're standing there in the yard and then you can think about the research that they did and picture the environment it happened in. What, you know, I don't know that you could have a sense of that very often. Uh, Brandon took us into the room where they were testing processing equipment for honey harvesting. 
and it was cool to see the industrial extractor equipment they had, uncapping equipment, and they had a honey drying machine. He mentioned the honey drying machine could bring the honey down to a moisture of 4%, and we had a short sidebar of what honey might look like if it was taken down to that level, and he said he did not know. They had never tried it. Uh, my guess would be it would become very stiff, but they use it there to combat wet honey. He mentioned that the climate there is very humid, as you know, if you've ever been to Florida. And there are times that beekeepers bring in loads that have high humidity and they want to, uh, or a high water percentage due to humidity. And they wanted to understand how to use this machine to dry the honey out. I thought that was kind of cool. I've never seen one of those before. When I asked him about honey harvesting in general, I was surprised to learn that their season in Gainesville is from March to May. And fall is a bit hit and miss. You would think that Florida would be all year long, but apparently, and maybe I have that wrong. It seems wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what he said going on memory. They have cold and just like us. And that pattern is not too different from New Jersey. I, I would have thought the further south you go, the better longer period they have and more productivity. He did say Southern Florida, they can go all year long. And one of the key things that they have is Brazilian peppers. I don't know. We brought some of that honey back, but that style of pepper produces product all year long. And a lot of beekeepers take advantage. And he mentioned or inferred that maybe this is kind of a problem. They all truck their bees down south so they can get that, that honey all year long. And, you know, I guess the pressures of that make it a problem. I asked him about Africanized bees. And he mentioned that south of I-4, which is a corridor that runs across Florida, that's where the Africanized bees tend to be. It's not that they can't come north of I-4, but generally it's perceived. And I asked him, do commercial guys go down in that zone? He said, yeah, they do. The commercial guys are all over in Florida. But if they run into problems with Africanized hives, they might requeen them and resolve the problem. He, he basically said, or inferred again, that it's something that they're used to and they know how to deal with it. That struck the curiosity of Africanized bees and Russian bees because I have some of them in my yard and I asked him if there were any queen breeders there. And he said, yeah, there's a person off the top of his head south of it, Orlando, that does a lot of that work in Florida and is doing specialized queen breeding for the beekeepers at, in the area. When I asked him about the hives quantity-wise and the fact that they have so many commercial people there. I, I'm positive he said they had thousands. I don't want to say 5,000 plus beekeepers there with 600,000 hives. That's just mind-blowing to me. And I can't imagine how it is that they have so many colonies down there. He mentioned one of the things that the apiarist department has to deal with is bee theft in the state and they're working with beekeepers to put identification on the hives and doing things like RFD, RFID tags and such. 
Of course, as a state apiarist, one of the things they're tasked to do is monitor and mitigate foul brood. And he mentioned that they were getting into building out a state diagnostic lab to combat beekeeper problems and provide services to beekeepers. You know, something similar to in a small scale to the USDA lab in Beltsville, Maryland. He spent a moment talking about a diagnostic test they were doing to see if they could test a colony for resistance to mites, presumably in the field based on what I thought he was talking about. They're going to use this diagnostic and go out and sample yards and provide services to beekeepers. And as you might imagine, for Florida, they were coming up with tests to, to verify Africanized bees and to tell whether bees were a pure strain and things like that. So that's a fledgling effort, and it sounds like they have a lot going on. If I think about the way the lab was arranged, um, I thought it was cool. They had multiple sections in the campus to work with, and there were people milling around. And when it comes to Brandon, I, what do you say about the hospitality he showed us by just walking up to two strangers and giving us an impromptu tour in the middle of his workday? I can't say enough for the fact that we felt welcomed and had a great conversation with him and appreciated. He walked us back inside and let us see the displays that they have out front of the campus. We actually found the front door and saw the offices of Cameron Jack and Jamie Ellis. Uh, Jamie wasn't there that day, but we were, I spent one last question for Brandon. He was so gracious. So, you know, I forgot to mention when he brought us inside, he took us into the lab where they have the setup for all the observation hives. It was really cool. It's this long room, white interior and Along the way, there's these stations with a bar that you set the hive on, and there's holes in the wall that the exits go out. When you go around the other side and look at the brick wall from the outside, you see a bunch of holes you never really grasp that that's what that's for. I think they had probably enough room for almost a dozen stations. I don't know. I took a picture of that. I don't have it handy, but... Back to Jamie Ellis. Wasn't there that day. We didn't encounter him. Maybe he was in his office. I don't know. It was lunchtime. He could have went out for that. But I had asked, where could we get some Tupelo honey? And while discussing that with Brandon, he turned to Cameron Jack and said, do you know where you can get it? And Cameron walked up and engaged in a conversation. I said hello to him. I don't know if he remembered me. We both spoke at Kentucky at EAS. He went just before me. We talked about, and I thanked him for his oxalic acid study, and actually was brave enough to ask him if he wanted to come on to the show at some point, and he said, sure, send him an email. He wasn't going to be at EAS this year, but um, I did get to mention to him that Gene said hello. Gene from our club just spent a month with him over in Thailand, and he had said that because he was in Thailand, he wasn't going to be able to make the trip out to EAS. He had to stay home and do domestic things, which I understand. Uh, nice guy, Cameron, you know, just had a quick conversation and, oh, there's Cameron Jack. Um, all in all, what can you say? We just wanted to see the place and we got that in spades. I, I can't thank Brandon enough for his hospitality again. And the whole crew there, they were very welcome. A lot of people said hi and asked us where we were from. And if you ever get a chance, Make sure you go in the front entrance, 
Although the back worked out pretty good for us. And look, they have a bunch of neat displays there. They have great photographs, great artwork, a bunch of books in the case that, that showcased some of the early learnings of beekeeping. Uh, it was a neat place to stop by. I, I don't know if they cater to this. They, they were not... Um, if you go to their websites, they do tours. So please, go when they do tours. Don't do what we did. I just wanted to see where the place was. Um, I didn't anticipate having to interrupt somebody's day. And I wouldn't suggest you just drop in on them like we did. That was actually kind of rude of us. But uh, I guess they'll, they'll forgive us for we look like two kids in a candy store when we were wandering around there. So to the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory there, hosted by Jamie Ellis, you guys, thank you. The, the stuff that you're doing and the hospitality, especially to Brandon, we really appreciate the visit and learned a lot. And it's now one of those things that I'll remember. It was cool to visit there. Uh, neat experience as a beekeeper. So that's what we had in store for the episode. Let's turn to the local hive report before we close things down. There are 20 colonies down from 22 in the last report, if I remember correctly. And knock on wood, you know, they're all doing well, each and every one. I spent the morning yesterday just going through all the colonies, peeking in, seeing what state they're in, seeing how they're growing. Many of the colonies are six over six polystyrene hives. I think I have six or seven or eight of them. They look great. Every one of them were from queens that we reared and they've all built out. I think one of them was stalled. This was the one that came from the European fowl brood. Uh, let's spend a moment on that. Last inspection that I did, I had one colony that had European fowl brood. I tore that colony apart. I burned the frames that were brood frames. I redeployed the other frames into the colony with the Russian hives and I infused it with fresh new bees. If you ever have a case of European fowl brood, that's kind of the recipe for how to deal with it. You know, I know this is the local hive report, but let me spend a minute on this. It used to be back in the day that you would use teramycin as a prophylactic or and or a treatment. Nowadays, you just can't put that stuff in your hive without a prescription and most people don't get away or don't go that direction. There are non-chemical methods to be used and primarily what they are is propping up the colony and letting the brood that is sick die and get ripped out. The way you do that is if you infuse a colony with a bunch of new brood, the nurse bees will tend to the new brood and they'll discard the sick brood. And eventually they clean it all up. Now nurse bees coming into contact with sick brood, they potentially have the possibility of picking things up and such, but uh, the sick brood will die and be eliminated from the hive. This came from a study from Keith Delaplane in 2006, and that tends to clean things up. You can also supplement that colony by feeding it one-to-one -one syrup. That stimulates brood rearing, and when fresh new brood rearing is going on uh, alongside a small batch of European fowl brood, it cleans the colony up in the same, similar manner to what I just described. Now, some people get 
this done the European way, at least that's what I always associate it, by doing a shook swarm. They shake all the bees out onto new comb, discard all the new comb that has all the nasties in it, and when the colony recovers, they eliminate all that was going on. There might be some European foul brood within the bee community itself, but generally new bees refresh that out and, and it just goes away. In essence, that's what I did. I had one colony that had a little bit of European foul brood on one or two brood frames. I eliminated those frames. I saved the other two brood frames that were okay. I put them into a healthy colony and I took the bees with them. And that colony grew to a full-size colony and looking at the brood, it's perfect. There's no issues with it whatsoever. The two bad frames, I happened to be burning some firewood and I just threw them on the pile. They're not worth saving at this point and I don't want them in my operation. Um, coming back to the local hive report, it's honey harvesting time. I went through all of the colonies. Some of them did really well and some of them did just okay. And yeah, did okay with honey this year. Thick on par of what we had last year. And that's all I could ask for. Uh, production colonies, I just want to have about five, six, seven boxes to harvest. Anything more than that is a chore. Uh, that being said, Sharon does all the harvesting. Pulled all the honey yesterday. It's sitting in the garage and she's going to start this morning, actually. As I head to EAS this week, she's going to harvest everything we have and get it into buckets. Hence the straining thing that I talked about earlier. It's on the mind. Uh, if I go through some other things, I will say that all in all, uh, all the colonies look strong. I don't see any brood problems. They're all full. And, you know, maybe some of these six over six polystyrene hives, which only have 12 frames, could use more space. I don't have any more comb. I don't have any more frames built out. I just bought a hundred pack of foundation and I have a hundred frames to build. I guess this summer at some point, if I get a lull, which is a laughable thing, I, I might build them out. But my suspicion is we're in a dearth and I haven't talked about the weather here. It's hot. It's been hot and it hasn't rained for three weeks. It feels like the weather typical New Jersey for us, comes across Pennsylvania, gets to the Delaware Water Gap, and it splits, goes north of 78 and south of Route 1, and we don't get any rain. Our grass yards around our area are brown, and the grass in my apiary died. I'm trying to do my best to water it. Sharon's laughing at me that I'm watering dead grass, but I'm trying to do what I can to make the apiary look better than a mud hole. Um, very dry. Our creek out front has dried out. It's been multiple years since it's been this dry. The question lies with what's going to happen. The typical MO that we see in New Jersey when this happens is dry August, dry September, and late September, a big hurricane comes through and floods us out. I hope that's not going to be the case. Other than that, things in the apiary look good. Everything's ship shape. I have to share two stories. Uh, one, I was in the yard yesterday and heard a cracking sound. I live in the woods. 
I have big trees, big. They're foot and a half around. The question is, if a tree falls in the forest, do you hear it? Oh yeah. <laughs> this tree that was a foot and a half in diameter and has been leaning over the apiary cracked yesterday while I was standing in the middle uh, harvesting honey. And I watched it go and I physically sprinted out of the apiary and turned around to see it fall backwards away from the apiary. I've always said to Sharon, this tree is the one that's looming, but it was so rotten, I doubt you could get a bee guy, to, a tree guy, bee guy, to come and take it down because it wouldn't climb it. It was, it was too rotted. Well, it fell backwards, twisted, turned sideways, and fell over and laid against another tree. And it was laying on a 30 degree angle. I thought, wow, that's cool. One, it fell away from the apiary, but that was cool to be there to see it go. Well, later in the day, it fell completely. And I heard it go. It cracked, broke a couple branches. And again, I sprinted out of the apiary just because I had no idea which way it was going to go. And it fell off and away to the side and hit with a thud that shook the ground. The tree had to be 40 foot tall and it was solid all the way up. When it hit, it was like train. Boom. Crazy. I don't think I've ever been in the woods to see a tree of that magnitude fall that I would, didn't cut down. Uh, that was really kind of cool. What was I doing at the time? That's story number two. I was harvesting my flow hive. <laughs> yeah, the flow hive. Finally, after three, maybe four years trying, I turned the spigot and the honey flowed out. I have to say, it was as magical, as magical as the videos make it. If I have to come away with one impression, it took forever for all the honey to flow out. You think about the way honey flows and drips. I want to say it took 30 minutes for every frame to fully drain. I did seven frames. At one point, I had two or three going at the same time. Out of the flow hive, we got about 22 and a half pounds. Filled four five pound jars, and then one of them about a third full. There's a couple frames there that still have honey. I'm not going to bother with them. They're inconsequential as far as I could see. I'm smitten with the fact that it actually worked and wonder if I will try now that I've had success with it. What the heck is there to lose? Maybe I'm going to put it on again. I don't know. I thought I was going to take the thing and put it away. But it's kind of ironic that it actually worked. What I was thinking about is taking it to Valley Crest and seeing if I could put it on there and get fall honey out of it. I would love to take and put it somewhere where I can get some goldenrod honey. That would be so cool. So local hive report, 20 hives in play. And they all look really, really good. In fact, I really should be doing increases. But this time of year, I don't think they're going to do a great job at that. I, I do have three colonies over at Valley Crest and one of them needs a honey super. So on the drive out to EAS today, I might talk to Bob Clausen to stopping, taking the bear fence 
off and just throwing a super up there. We'll see if there's time for that. Either on the way there or on the way home. Local high report. Check. Everything is in working order. And given my conversation earlier about not treating, now it's on to late summer, early fall management of monitoring these hives and making sure that none of them turn for the worse. This is going to be the watch period, and we'll see what happens. Uh, closing comments. Time to wrap this thing up. You know what? I am late, 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 late for an important date. I have to leave to go to EAS in like an hour and something, and I've still got to put this show out. So, time to close it down. If you're going to EAS, I put this out this morning hoping that maybe it got out there fast enough that some of you driving in might pick it up and read it. I've heard from other beekeepers that they actually listen to the show on the drive-in when they drive with other people. So if you were the lucky one that got this show and listened to it and you came to EAS and you find me, let me know. I'll buy you an adult beverage. <laughs> it's just a stupid little thing I have going on in my head about perceptions of rushing to get this show out before we leave. Uh, two talks this year. I've redone my talks a little bit. I'm excited about them. And yeah, I'm looking forward to a week amongst my peeps. Uh, Bob Kloss and I are driving up to Cornell and we're going to have a really good week. I have some family that live right there within 20 minutes of the campus. I'm not sure if the week is going to afford the opportunity to break away, but we'll see how that works out. Been a fun summer so far, as far as beekeeping goes, and this is the time of year where things kind of get quiet, I feel like, and, you know, then we'll get to the point where whether we have to feed the bees and make sure they're fat and happy for winter, uh, that'll happen when we get back from EAS and we start doing assessments. No rest for the weary until winter comes. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, they can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Have a good rest of the summer. We'll talk to you next time.